The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. In honor of National Bullying Prevention Month, we talk with Dr. Susan Swearer, Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She is the co-director of the Bullying Research Network, a group designed to promote and assist international collaboration among bullying and peer victimization researchers. For the past two decades, Dr. Swearer has developed and implemented a data-based decision-making model for responding to bullying among school-age youth. She's authored over 100 book chapters and articles on the topics of bullying, depression, and anxiety in youth. Dr. Swearer talks with us about what bullying is and isn't, the importance of kindness in bullying prevention, and her experience touring with Lady Gaga. Here are your hosts, Mia and Andrea. Hi, this is Andrea. And this is Mia. And we're here with Dr. Sue Swearer. Hello, Sue. Hey, guys. It's great to be talking to you. We're so excited that you are able to join us today, Sue. Um, You and I have known each other a long time and um, have worked together on some really interesting projects. Kind of going back, I know that we met because I was looking for an expert. And I have to tell you that even though I often speak about bullying prevention as part of my overall SEL work, uh, I feel like uh, everything I've learned, I've learned from you. <laughs> so, oh, thank you. <laughs> so it is particularly uh, rewarding to have you here talking to us today. I'd love to kind of just go back and talk a little bit about how you started working in bullying prevention. Like what got you interested in this field? I know. I wish I had a really exciting answer to that question. Uh, when I got to Nebraska, I started my job as an assistant professor in 1997 at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And my one of the first courses I taught was developmental psychopathology. And we talk a lot in that class about you know externalizing problems in kids and internalizing problems. And one of the externalizing problems that I would teach about is conduct disorder. And one of the symptoms of conduct disorder is often bullies, threatens, or intimidates others. And so in that class, there was a guidance counselor from one of our local middle schools who said, you know, we have a really big problem with bullying in our school, and can you help us? And, you know, I was a first-year desperate assistant professor, desperate for data. And so I said, sure, I can do that. (laughs) And that's kind of how it started. And then, you know, in 1999, Columbine happened. And so that really changed the national conversation about bullying in schools. And that just kind of became my career, uh, for better or for worse. So some of our audience has little knowledge of bullying prevention. I'm sure they've heard about bullying. You know, everybody yes. kind of knows about bullying. It's like, guys, there's a specific definition that is applied to bullying, especially in research. I wonder if you could give them some context for how you think about bullying. What is bullying? Sure. So, you know, it's pretty established that there are three components to bullying. And one is it's intentional mean behavior. It's repeated. So it happens over and over again, or it has the ability to be repeated as in cyberbullying. And then the, I think, really important piece is that there's an imbalance of power. So the person who is being bullied has a hard time defending, you know, themselves. And so we know that power piece is really important and is linked to, you know, I think feelings of helplessness and hopelessness and mental health conditions. And that imbalance of power, I think a lot of folks 
find it difficult to believe that a child that is larger in size <laughs> could be that they seem stronger or or um, physically more imposing could also experience bullying. What are some of the the things that you've seen that are kind of misconceptions around bullying? Sure. So yeah, I think that's a really good point. Not all, you know, kids who bully others are bigger or, you know, bigger than their targets. And certainly smaller kids can, you know, perpetrate bullying as well. So I think really understanding that power means it could be social status, it could be friendships, um, it could be, you know, who your family is in the community. If you're in a rural area and your family has a lot of power, I was giving a talk once in a rural part of our state and the teacher said, you know, the kid who does the most bullying, you know, in our school is the son of the sheriff. You know, you think about in, in rural areas, you know, who has power and it could be, you know, the, the law enforcement. So, I mean, it's just, there's so many complicated factors that play into it. And I think it's really important not to, you know, kind of get stuck on stereotypes. Um, in my own research, I've done a lot of work around bully victims, so kids who both perpetrate bullying and are bullied themselves. And that's been a big part of my work is to communicate that message that bullying is not a dyadic problem between, you know, one bully and one victim. In fact, I think that's the rare, <laughs> rarer occurrence. Right. And I think I, I was talking to Andrea about this earlier, actually, that when I first heard about this, I was surprised that it was like 30%. Yes. Is that right, Sue? Like there's that they think about 30% of kids who are doing bullying are also getting bullied. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's one of the challenges with research in this area is that, you know, the how we measure bullying, because it's a complicated social relationship, it's, it's a hard behavior to assess. And so we generally say, you know, three out of four kids during their school years, so 75% of kids at some point in elementary school, middle school or high school, are involved in bullying across the continuum, which runs the range from bully perpetrators to kids being bullied to both, and then also bystanders, so the kids who, you know, observe bullying. So it really is a, a ubiquitous, you know, problem um, in schools, and, and people are studying bullying in workplaces, and I've been reading some people who are studying bullying in retirement communities. So I also say bullying is an equal opportunity behavior. doesn't matter how old you are, your gender identity, it can happen. And I think that one of the effects of that, how ubiquitous it is, is that people think it's pretty normal. Like it's normal mm -hmm. behavior. You're just, it's something you're supposed to go through that it builds character. That was kind of, there's, there's a perception around it. That it gets you tough, right? It makes you ready for the world. Yeah. Um, but what are some of the actual effects of bullying? Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think, you know, again, when I started studying bullying, which is, you know, shockingly over two decades ago, kind of dates me for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, they, there really was that very much that perception that, you know, why is this a big deal? You know, I was bullied as a kid, you know, everyone was and you just kind of, quote, got over it. And so one of the benefits of all the research that has been happening for the past, you know, 40 years, actually, if we go back to Dan Alvaeus's pioneering work in Norway, you know, we know that there are serious consequences in terms of mental health um, issues, poor academic performance, truancy in schools, you know, not going to school because it's an unpleasant experience. So there are a lot of social, academic, you know, psychological consequences for everybody involved in bullying. So it's not just 
kids who are the targets. It's also kids who perpetrate bullying. You know, there's longitudinal research that shows that they are more likely to have, you know, unhappy, you know, relationships even going into an adulthood. Uh, there's a connection to domestic violence. So it really is, I think, a benefit of, again, all the research, but also all the media attention around bullying is that, you know, when I'm in schools, I don't really hear people say anymore, well, you know, kids just kids just have to duke it out. This is just the way it is. I think schools are really recognizing this is a massive issue and something that they have to respond to, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a consistent way. Yeah, and I think that's right. I mean, I think there's certainly a, a change in the in the recognition of uh, the severity of the consequences of bullying and, you know, on individuals, but also on systems, right? Like on learning environments. And I mean, Sue, do you even recall sort of the time span it's been since they started enacting legislation mm-hmm. around bullying and bullying prevention? Oh, yeah. I mean, it really has been. I mean, because when I first started studying bullying, you know, kind of my first presentation at the American Psychological Association was in 1998. And at that point, I think only five states had some kind of a law or policy um, against bullying. And and then now every state does, you know, they have some kind of combination right. of mm-hmm. laws and policies. Uh, so, and when, and when I started studying bullying, we didn't really study cyberbullying because it didn't exist. Right. Again, I mean, I'm, right. I hate to sound like I'm as old as, you know, <laughs> very old. I'm ready for their time retirement community. <laughs> well, and maybe you can address some of the issues of bullying in the retirement community. <laughs> exactly. Um, She's way off from that. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, so, and speaking of, of cyberbullying, one of the things that I hear a lot in working with schools is the difficulty they have in addressing bullying in spaces outside their physical environment. And in some cases, I think there might be a tendency to say, that's not our issue. We, you know, I've taken care of things on the playground. I'm making sure that they're safe when they're here. But we also know that kids bring those experiences to school. So tell us a little about cyberbullying and emerging research there. And, and if you've seen anything as far as school reactions to that, that you want, would want to highlight. Sure. I mean, I think in my experience, certainly recently, most schools have some kind of policy about, you know, electronic usage. And so again, you know, years ago, schools kind of had their school, you know, administrators said, you know, that's not under our purview. So we can't do anything about it. And I think that's really changed. And I think certainly, you know, at least in our schools, in our community, every student gets a Chromebook, you know, so a lot of schools, Mm -hmm. you know, they're just giving kids laptops. And, you know, obviously, they've got firewalls, and they block certain, you know, sites. But I think electronic devices are just really an extension of kids' social experiences now. We see, we've seen all the cartoons where, you know, you've got the parents driving their kids and they're like, wow, it's really quiet in the back seat. And, you know, they're not talking and they're, they are talking, but they're texting. And so I think schools are really recognizing that, you know, cell phones, computers, I mean, just electronic communication is how kids are communicating. And so they have to address it. And so I think there's a lot of movement toward good digital citizenship. You know, how do we teach kids how to use these devices and and then also empower parents. I mean, that's another thing, you know, I say to parents is most parents are paying for the phone plan or in the phones. And so having some limits around 
phone usage um, is really important in talking to kids about, you know, what sites they're on, using parental controls. <laughs> in fact, in my uh, research group today, someone was sharing a story about uh, a client that they were working with, and we have a bullying intervention program for bully perpetrators. And one of the interventionists was saying that this young girl sent a nude picture of herself, and so the boyfriend or whoever she sent it to sent it out, and so both of their phones were confiscated by the police and there's an ongoing investigation. And in the work with this young person and her parent, the um, young person was super upset that she lost her iPhone. And her mother said, well, we'll go out and get you an Android. <laughs> so <laughs> and I was thinking, wait a minute, shouldn't the response be, well, that's the logical consequence of sending a nude photo. You don't actually have access to a phone anymore. So I think part of our work is really empowering parents to say, you know, what would be the right response <laughs> in that case? <laughs> Well, you know, and to that point about parents, I feel like people are kind of at a loss, right? So many parents now who have preteens and teens just didn't grow up with the kind of connectivity and smartphones and the internet and social media, right? Yeah. And so they don't understand it. And I feel like there's quite a bit of panic about it. Help us understand sort of the reality of it. Like you see a lot of headlines in the news about epidemic and shocking headlines, right? Mm -hmm. So help us kind of understand the relationship between cyberbullying and in-person bullying and, and how can parents kind of get a little better handle on it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the unfortunate side of, you know, media headlines are that, you know, the hysterical headlines is what, is what sells, you know. And so, you know, there's a over-exaggeration. Um, Dewey Cornell, who's a researcher at the University of Virginia, writes about this, that, you know, if you look at the media, you think schools are like the most dangerous places ever. But if you look at the research, schools are actually the safest places. So, you know, it really, yeah, I mean, I think part of our work is helping parents kind of not freak out and kind of understand, you know, what is, you know, when are behaviors, you know, quote, normal, and when do they become problematic? We certainly know from the research that all forms of bullying, so verbal, relational, physical, and electronic, tend to co-occur. So I think another important myth buster is that cyberbullying is not somehow a separate behavior from bullying. I mean, it's bullying through electronic means. And so, again, as a parent, I think part of our work with parents is to say, you know, you're in charge of the phone, you're paying for it, you've probably bought the phone. And it's important to have conversations with kids about what apps they're on and how they communicate with their friends. And then I also think as a parent, you know, I mean, I'm not the most facile person with Snapchat, but, you know, it's kind of fun to, you know, my daughters, you know, will send me a Snapchat, they'll text me. It's kind of an extension of our communication. And I think that that's an important way for parents to think about it, that it's a way they can also interact with their kids and I think open up channels of communication. And then also if kids feel like, oh, my parent, you know, or the adult that I'm living with kind of understands, you know, this technology, then they might be more likely to share when, you know, they maybe are getting bullied or somebody wrote a mean thing, you know, then how do you respond to that? And I think it's clear if kids feel like, oh, the adult in my life is going to take away my phone or take away my, you know, laptop, then they're not going to share. And so I think, again, I mean, this is just good parenting 101, that you want to have open lines of communication with your children. 
Well, I think it's it's also clear that adults don't only want to be talking to kids about their technology, but probably also about the media they're consuming. Um, and there's just a lot of depictions of bullying in, in film and in TV. And I'm curious how you mm-hmm. th- think those representations of bullying are are doing. Are they are they appropriate? Are they bringing the right or the wrong kind of attention? I'm particularly thinking of 13 Reasons Why. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, a, a big topic, too. You know, I've heard both sides of the 13 reasons why in terms of it's important, you know, if we want to destigmatize mental illness, it's important to talk openly about it. You know, it's important to talk about suicidal ideation and to create avenues for kids to feel that they have somewhere to go or someone to talk to. On the other hand, you know, we are all aware of the suicide contagion effect. And so it's that's really tricky. I think it's a tricky balance. I think in terms of depictions of bullying, you know, I kind of feel the same way that it's just, again, a tricky balance. It's important to have the topic in the media and certainly, you know, say movies or TV shows and for kids to talk about it. But it's also, you know, you don't want to give kids, you know, oh, wow, that's a cool idea. (laughs) You know, maybe I'll try that tomorrow in school. So I think when, you know, parents or adults and kids sit down and watch you know, whatever the show is and have conversations about, you know, well, was that a nice thing to say? And no, it wasn't. I mean, when you're consuming, I think, thoughtfully or intellectually media, then it becomes a learning tool versus, you know, just watching horrible scenes. Another, you know, Dewey also was involved in a study where they looked at, um, you know, kind of the effect of the current political climate. And, you know, that's something that's very worrisome, too, is that when people are observing, you know, politicians and, and people in, in positions of power uh, being rude and saying mean things and, you know, basically bullying other people, um, you know, it just creates a really negative climate. And so, you know, I think we have to counteract that, obviously. Yeah, that's um, modeling, of course, is important, whether it is you know, in the media or in the family, right? Or in schools, you know, the adults have a responsibility to model the behaviors that we want to see in the next generation. I just want to take it back a little bit though, Sue, to Mm -hmm. the the question of bullying and suicide, which I know is a really sensitive one. Yeah. Um, One of the things that I can see happening is a tremendous rise in anxiety amongst parents when they find out that there is a bullying incident at school, right? Mm -hmm. And with what's going on in, you know, in the media and even just, you know, news and with so many young suicides being reported, they're almost invariably, even if there is or isn't bullying involved, it, you know, the question is kind of always asked to the point where I feel like it is very tied now to even parents thinking, oh no, my kid is being bullied now I need to worry about suicide. And, you know, what is the reality of that? Are those warranted fears or are they outsized fears? What's your feeling around that? Yeah, I mean, again, this is the negative of media attention is that, you know, again, the soundbite is what sells and or what draws attention to, you know, an issue. And so with the kind of narrative that bullying causes suicide, I think that's contributed to, I think you said earlier, you know, parents, you know, parents freaking out. It's a very complex relationship. And I, I think the healthier conversation or the more accurate conversation is that bullying is tied to feelings of depression. And again, it's a chicken and the egg, you know, kind of question. I mean, maybe the student or the young person was depressed before the bullying started. And then certainly, you know, I've written about 
bullying is a stressful life event, and we know that stressful life events are linked to, you know, to the cause or the, the emergence of a depressive disorder. And so certainly it's a risk factor. And I think then it's also really important for, and this kind of gets back to, you know, trying to respond to bullying early, not ignoring it, not letting it go on. Um, because if we can help empower kids to take charge and not let this power imbalance, you know, kind of continue, if we empower kids, then you know, even if they're having, you know, a stressful situation like bullying, you know, they're developing other tools in terms of, okay, how do I respond to this? How do I deal with this? You know, when our kids were young and people were mean to them and, you know, maybe it couldn't be considered bullying, I just always said to them, why do you want to hang out with somebody who's mean? You know, you have the power <laughs> in terms of who you choose to be friends with. And I think more kids need to hear that message. Do you find that obviously bullying has negative impacts down the road for those experiencing it? Is it worse for are there other factors that might increase that negative impact? Other things that can contribute to poor outcomes for kids? Are there certain groups of kids that might experience the effects of bullying to a greater degree? Well, certainly, and a lot has been written about and researched on the effects of LGBTQ kids, and that's clear that that is connect bullying is connected to you know negative outcomes for those groups of young people, and then I think related to that is lack of support. So if you're a young person, and let's say you're a gay young person in a rural area, and you're being bullied, but you've got a really loving, supportive family, you know, so then the family becomes you know a protective factor. Or you go to a school that has a program like Second Step or, you know, has good school climate. Well, the positive school climate becomes a protective factor. And so, again, that to me is what's troubling about a narrative of one thing causes, you know, suicide is that, you know, it's much more complicated than one, you know, there's rarely one causal factor for some kind of a behavioral or psychological outcome. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, you mentioned um, protective factors and, you know, one being school climate, another doing a social emotional learning program and, and digging into that a little bit more. How do you describe the relationship between social and emotional learning and bullying prevention? So I think it's really key to bullying prevention. And I, and I think, again, this is something that we've been seeing in the recent, you know, say, you know, six years or, or longer, um, but kind of a recent conceptualization that good social emotional learning skills need to be specifically taught. And again, they're tools when kids have, and adults, when everybody has those positive tools, then that really is like an anecdote to bullying behaviors. So if you are, you know, you can express your feelings appropriately and you can, you know, you know how to resolve conflict in a healthy way, you know, what to do if, if you're feeling sad, then, you know, those are protective factors against involvement in bullying. So I think it's really inter it's key. So at the time of, of this podcast release, it's Bullying Prevention Month. Uh-huh. I think there it's great that there's a, a national focus on bullying prevention during this month and that there are a lot of activities that the schools and, and parents take on related to that. A, a lot of good content comes out in yep. Bullying Prevention Month. Yep. What are some initiatives that you've seen that have really helped raise awareness or um, spurred people to take action around bullying prevention? 
either within this month or or ongoing. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly a lot of, you know, the increased attention is great. And I always say, you know, it should be bullying prevention month should be every month. Um, Mm -hmm. But at least, you know, they've picked a month and, and there's a lot of activities around that. I think, you know, again, it's really important that teachers and adults are good role models and that are they, they act like good role models and then that communication in the school is consistent, that people say bullying behavior is not tolerated. If they see it or observe it or hear about it, you know, then they actively say that's not okay. We don't do that here. You know, we empower, you know, students and give them the language to stand up to, you know, someone who's bullying or being mean in in an appropriate way. And then, again, just having it be part of the fabric of the school. So I think, you know, campaigns and, you know, you've got schools who are putting posters up and having, you know, classroom rules about certain behaviors and school handbooks and information going home to parents. I think that's all really important. One of the things our school district has done is, you know, they give every student a planner. And in the planner is kind of like fact sheet or tips about bullying. And so again, I just think having that be part of the daily conversation is important. And and I think that's where we're also seeing, you know, kind of this increase in kindness campaigns. And I think that those are great. And I think that's the language we want to give people as an anecdote, you know, to bullying or an inoculation, if you will. You know, Sue, we talk a lot about bullying prevention you know, the actual activities and sort of specific activities around bullying prevention is the purview of schools. But you have actually had the opportunity to work in this field in a lot of different ways. And actually, one of the interesting projects that you and I have worked on together was the launch of Lady Gaga's Born This Way Foundation. And in fact, you worked with that foundation beyond just the launch. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about your experience uh, both at the launch, but as a psychologist that was working with that organization and on the road with Lady Gaga. Yeah, no, absolutely. That certainly was a very interesting project. Mm -hmm. And um, I was able to go, you know, kind of on the road with the Born This Way ball tour. That was in 2013, I think. Yes, it was 2013. And that was just a really great experience. And what the foundation did at the time, and they've continued to do, is to really bring together partners across the United States and research, mental health, big companies, and and really kind of amplify the message of, you know, kindness and bravery. So what does it take to, you know, create kind and brave homes, schools, and communities? And so, you know, a big focus also for the foundation is on mental wellness And then how can we support young people and youth in terms of, you know, resilience and developing, you know, strong mental health or strong mental health behaviors. And so they've done a lot of really great things. And I've had, you know, some neat opportunities, like one of the projects was with Mattel. And so, you know, we went out to the Mattel headquarters and just thinking about, you know, how can you use toys or video to send messages of positivity and, you know, healthy relationships. And so it's been fun to think about, you know, how do we scale this um, in terms of really changing how people interact with each other and, and with themselves. And, you know, when you were on tour, there was a bus, right? Right. There was a bus where the concert goers could could stop and talk to you and get information. When you met young people, 
Could you just talk a little bit about that experience. What was that like? And how do you feel like young people are oriented toward the subject? Sure. Well, certainly, you know, I mean, pop culture is a big influence on on young people. And the bus was a, basically, it was like a 7,000 square foot footprint outside of the concert venues. And so there was an actual bus, but there were all these interactive activities. And so I was in charge of the behavioral health piece. And so we had volunteers from National Association of School Psychologists, National Council on Behavioral Health, Trevor Project was there, Glisten, Boys and Girls Clubs of America. So I mean, we had there were lots of partners. And the point was to let young people know here are resources in your community where you can go and volunteer, get help, you know, be supportive. And then also there were interactive experiences. So there was obviously a lot of music, but there were games and, and just and f- and a food tent and just opportunities for people to interact with one another. And I think most people crave that. You know, you want to have some kind of connection with friends or peers, colleagues. And so, you know, I've talked a lot with schools about, you know, how do you create a welcoming place or workplaces, you know, how do you create a place where people are like, I'm really psyched to go to work because the environment is so neat. You know, it's meaningful, Mm -hmm. it's fun. And so I think the bus experience with that concert tour really created a space for people to be themselves and then learn about opportunities in their community and, and, you know, volunteering and, and then also where can they go, you know, to get support and help. Um, So I think that's really critical. That sounds like an amazing experience. It actually, when you're talking about engaging with kids in, in that way and what schools can do, and then you talked about the workplace, it makes me wonder Do you see differences across age groups as far as prevalence of bullying or types? Well, certainly, you know, if you look at the research, the younger kids are, the more physical the bullying tends to be. And that's just because they don't have the cognitive, you know, kind of (laughs) strategies that they learn as you age and, and grow up. And then you also learn, oh, wow, I'm getting in trouble for you know, physical bullying. So I'm going to be a little more sneaky about it and, uh, you know, engage in verbal or relational uh, forms or electronic forms of bullying, which, you know, can be harder to detect. You know, we used to always study bullying in middle school, that bullying was seen to peak in middle school and then decline in high school. But then, you know, when you talk to the researchers who research, you know, sexual harassment and, uh, you know, dating violence and intimate partner violence, they would argue that, well, bullying is just being replaced by, you know, a different kind of behavior. So I think, you know, again, I go back to my statement that I think bullying is an equal opportunity behavior regardless of age. It's certainly, you know, lots of people are writing and um, studying bullying in the workplace. I mean, you know, workplaces are not immune to that. In fact, I just got a journal that was a colleague sent to me that every single article in the journal issue is about bullying and higher education. Mm-hmm. And that's really fascinating, it, too. Sure. And I, I think that sort of saying researchers in, at certain age groups or with folks on certain age groups might say, those behaviors have morphed or have a different label um, mm-hmm. of harassment or sexual harassment or dating violence or in college, perhaps hazing or, or things like that. And I'm curious about very young kids. Do very young kids engage in bullying? Because you were saying there's some different, I mean, they're phys- yeah. physically, they may do that as they grow, but does it happen if 
two or three or four? When does it sort of start or does it, is it always there? Yeah, that's a really great question. So one of the hats I wear is I co-direct the Bullying Research Network with a colleague, uh, Dr. Shelley Emel, who's at the University of British Columbia. And we, uh, in the summer times for the past couple of years, have held a think tank with some of our researchers. So these tend to be smaller gatherings. And one that we held, I think it was four years ago, the whole topic was on bullying and early childhood education. And that was kind of the million dollar question is at what age does bullying emerge? And, you know, kind of consensus among the group was that, you know, certainly at two, three, four, kids just don't have the I mean, they, if they want something, they are going to take it. I mean, it's a very egocentric, you know, obviously stage of life. And so because bullying is a complicated kind of social behavior, those behaviors at that young age are developmentally appropriate for that age. I think certainly, and again, I, I kind of conceptualize this, is once kids get into a social s- setting, so it's not that the family's not social, but it's a little bit different. So I think once kids get into preschool and they're around a group of other kids, if I you know, say I'm a, in preschool and I want that toy and I'm going to take it from Mia, you know, that's not necess- that's not bullying. I just want the toy. <laughs> and that's all I know to do because I'm, you know, four. So kids at that age re- really obviously need to be taught, like, it's not okay to take a toy without asking if you can borrow it. So I think when those behaviors go unchecked and kids get into more nuanced social situations like elementary school, then certainly, you know, those behaviors could be labeled, you know, bullying. So kind of consensus of the group, if we were to kind of nail down an age, would be four or five, depending then also on the social kind of situation in which that young young toddler is in. And is it kind of like around intent as well? Yeah. You know, some kids are, you know, intent to actually do harm as opposed to get some kind of need met. Exactly, exactly. Or just I'm angry because I feel left out. And so I'm going to cry or hit you or whatever. So that is, yeah, I, I think you're, that's a really great point. I mean, it's the, the intention. Yeah. And at some point, you know, like young kids are just they're trying out a lot of things. And I mean, yeah, it's hard to say, like, when do you stop giving them leeway? <laughs> you know, right. of like, okay, you know, they're little, they're just trying something out. But right, I mean, I think to your point, Sue, that it's really the adult's job then to help guide them, mm-hmm. you know, toward more productive, positive behaviors. Right, right. Well, I think it's in its adults' jobs throughout, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school. I mean, I and and if you even think about it, just like life. I mean, I learn so much from colleagues who have been in positions, you know, longer than I have, or who have different perspectives. Or I think about my graduate students and how I mentor them. So I mean, it's just, it's not like it, it really ever ends. And so I think that you know, having a perspective of you know when you're you know, in a position, you know, as a teacher or an educator or consultant, you know, we all have the responsibility to help people navigate their relationships in a healthier way. Yeah, good point. So, Sue, what do you think are one or two kind of your top things that you wish people knew more about bullying, sort of that people just kind of really get wrong, the media gets wrong? Is there something that kind of gets under your skin. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think certainly the mental health connection for me has been something that, uh, you know, I've talked a lot about and and feel really strongly about and just how I think people get that 
incorrect, you know, so from things like we've talked about before that, you know, bully perpetrators, many of them have mental health issues as well. Um, In the intervention program that I developed, which is a, you know, basically a cognitive behavioral one-on-one intervention with bully perpetrators, in the 14 years that we've been collecting data on these kids, there has not been one kid who has not had some kind of underlying, you know, mental health condition like depression, anxiety, callous and emotional traits. And so I think that's really important for people to realize that it's just very complicated. Um, Again, the the connection between, you know, bullying and suicidality, that's very complicated. And so I would say that is my main one, you know, my first kind of thing. I wish people understood the truly the connection to mental health issues. And then the second one that, you know, I think drives all of us crazy is suspension, expulsion, and punishment-based strategies for dealing with bullying behaviors. I mean, we've known for, you know, decades that that is an inappropriate, quote, intervention. It does not help kids change their behavior. And so it drives me nuts that schools still rely on suspension and expulsion. Right. Zero tolerance policies, right, that we know are ineffective. Right. Um, But on the other side of that, what do you see going on in schools as alternatives to that that are really working? So I definitely think, you know, all these school climate initiatives. I mean, how do we create a climate where kids are like, I love going to school or school is a fun place. School is a safe place. So I think all of those initiatives designed to make schools welcoming, you know, and warm places are really critical. I think the research on having, you know, one teacher or one good friend, you know, somebody who kids feel a connection with. And then when teachers look out for, okay, who are the kids who might not have a connection? And then how do we get those kids connected? We know that that that's really important. I think a lot of the kindness initiatives that are going on right now are also really intriguing. I think we need to study them more. But I think that that kind of common language and that focus on being kind and kind acts and and supporting each other, I think that's really important as well. Yeah, and though kindness is, of course, uh, key to this podcast, <laughs> we're, the, we're the Grow Kinder podcast. And I, I think we use that term pretty liberally. We, social emotional learning doesn't always include kindness. There, there's character development programs that talk about kindness, but I think we believe wholeheartedly that social emotional skills have the power to help kids and adults grow kinder. Yep. And I do think that you've talked a little bit about why that's important, but I wonder if I could just ask a more nuanced question is, what do you see as the relationship between adults' kindness and expression of, of kindness and how that can influence children's behavior? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to Mia's comment about, you know, modeling. I mean, so again, you know, social learning theory tells us that when people observe certain behaviors, you know, they're more likely to emulate those behaviors. And so if you have a any environment where people are doing kind, nice things and other people see that, you know, it's like the whole pay it forward idea. If I go to Starbucks and or a coffee shop and someone buys me a coffee, I'm more likely to think, huh, I think maybe I'll buy the person behind me a coffee. Mm-hmm. So it just, it makes people feel good. And, you know, it makes the world a, a kinder place. And so I think that Adults need to, well, all of us you know, need to be really cognizant of how do we come across, how do we manage, you know, our stress, um, you know, when we're frustrated, what do we do, and and that how we act, people are watching, and so I think it's really critical. Yeah, good point. You know, 
one of the things we also ask in relation to kindness on this podcast, because uh-huh. it's the theme of our podcast, <laughs> is if you have witnessed an act of kindness recently, is there something that kind of stood out to you recently that you you want to talk about? Yeah, so certainly, you know, I follow Born This Way Foundation, and they're in the middle of their Be Kind uh, 21 campaign. And so, you know, just looking at their social media pages, people, they're posting every day acts of kindness that people have done. And so I, I think that's, you know, inspiring to to see that. On a personal note, uh, last year, I, I grew up in the in, on the East Coast and had a group of friends, and we all went to elementary school, middle school, and high school together. And sadly, one of our friends passed away last year. And so we started last year doing, a, we call it a girls reunion weekend, but we're, we're definitely older than, than being girls. And um, so this past weekend, we just did another reunion weekend. And so we you know, when I was, when you asked that question, and I was thinking about kindness, the whole weekend was just being kind to each other, right? You know, we toasted our friend who passed away. And my friends, because I hosted them, they, you know, bought every meal, they were like, no, you can't pay. And so it was just, it just was kind of a feel good weekend. So I think it was we were kind, you know, to each other, but then also, you know, really celebrating our friendship. So and sorry I got, and I got a lot of free meals. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot of uh, your research, you know, it's it's not only academic research, you're, you're putting things into action, you're assisting others in doing that and kind of making a difference and addressing these issues of bullying. I wonder how has it shaped your own life as a parent, as a, you know, what, what things over the course of your research have you been sort of intentional about changing in your own way of being or your own home? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Certainly, I mean, I think about kindness and being kind, you know, on a daily basis. And, and we talk with our kids a lot about that and, you know, volunteering and how do you make your community and your school a better place. Um, I think certainly because I research a topic that is something everyone's concerned about, I spend a lot of time doing, I guess, what I might call pro bono work or just, you know, working with schools to help them think through how are they responding to bullying and what are they doing about it. So I think those are just kind of two examples that stick out. Um, You know, I, I also think another topic that comes up when you're talking to parents is that, you know, not all mean behavior is bullying behavior. Um, so certainly as a parent, I share this story when, sometimes when I give talks. So when our youngest daughter was in third grade, she wanted to wear flip-flops and it was in the winter time. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. Why would she want to, you know, it's cold outside. And so, it, you know, it took her a while to to share the story. But basically the story was the cool girls in her classroom wore flip-flops to school and then they would trade. And so I thought this was so interesting because like the t- what teacher would even notice that, right? Like if some kid mm-hmm. had blue flip-flops on and then was wearing green flip-flops. So Alex wanted to be in the cool group and they wouldn't let her be in the group. And, and so then she felt really sad about that. And for... For anyone who knows our daughter, Alex, she's pretty feisty. So she finally told me the story, and she was really sad about it. She said, Mom, I just think they're bullying me. And I said, well, Alex, there's no imbalance of power. And she said, I just, she's like, I just hate that you study this. Yeah, that's actually, we've had that response from others. Stop being such a psychologist right now. (laughs) I think at Committee for Children, those of us who have kids have also all had that, you know, but the kids are like, stop talking about it that way. (laughs) Stop, you know, and, and it can be hard, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, especially when 
maybe you are a little bit more tuned in with your kids and the social dynamics that are going on in school. And then when you really do see things that are not right and, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's one thing to give advice to other people, right? (laughs) It's, it's another when it's your own kids, because it's very difficult Mm -hmm. to, to think logically and clearly Mm -hmm. when you're having really big feelings, like we tell you know, young kids. You know, yeah. this actually brings up for me. I, I feel I'm such a logical person. I'm very reactive when it comes to my children and I can manage myself. I can come down. But you always, I think, you know, if you're a caring parent, you want what's best for your kids and you want to stand up for them and you don't want them to have bad experiences, even if, you know, it's impossible to protect them from those things. Right. And it makes me sort of think about parents of children who are engaging in, in bullying, whether or not those children are also being bullied. I know that I've had friends that have had this experience. It can be really hard to hear from a school that your child is engaged in that kind of behavior and, and you cannot believe it. I mean, I think there's a tendency to say, well, what happened? What did that other child do? Um, Yeah. What are, do you have advice around that? How can parents be receptive to that feedback? How can they kind of do their own work to address that? Well, that's, yeah, I think that's a great question. And and certainly, you know, we've had parents who will refer their kids into our program because they're worried about their kids' aggressive or bullying behavior. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that's great. I mean, you know, we want that to happen. And, but, you know, the, often, you know, kids or parents, you know, either don't see or don't want to believe that their, their child is engaging in bullying behavior. And often, there's a lot of conflict between the, the home and the school. And so, Again, you know, I think trying to just have open conversations and a lot a line we use with parents of of bully perpetrators is to say if we collectively don't, you know, help this young person change how they're interacting with people, you know, we know that in the future as a young adult, they are going to have relationship problems, mental health problems. So it's really important. And, you know, we've never had a parent who's who then said, well, I don't care about that. (laughs) You know, Um, you know, we had actually one story I I also like to share is that, you know, we had a young boy a young man who was involved in bullying and his father came to the follow up meeting and he had just been released from prison. And, you know, he was kind of an aggressive guy and just a tough person. And so the interventionist said, you know, he was kind of poo-pooing some of the results. And then the interventionist said, well, do you want your son to end up in prison like you were? And the dad just kind of stopped and he's like, no. (laughs) So again, you know, I think it's like thinking about those questions to ask somebody to help them shift their thinking about bullying. And, And I think for the most part, like you said, parents just want what's best for their kids. And so, kind of helping them see, okay, well, some things need to change in order to help your child have healthier relationships. You know, to that point too, so listeners may have noticed that we often refer to children as children who are engaging in bullying or right. children who are doing bullying. And we do that intentionally because we try to avoid language like bully uh-huh. because we want to be able to think about kids as having the opportunity to change behaviors, right? We want to yep. we want to focus on the behavior, not the innate personality or, you know, essence of the of the child. Right. Because all kids have the opportunity to change the way that they behave. Right. And I'm just curious as to how it is you frame that for the opportunity to change to young people. 
Yeah, absolutely. So again, you know, we we use the same language, like we really stay away from victim bully. We try to say, you know, being bullied, you know, bullying others, you know, bully perpetrating it just to to illustrate or to really demonstrate you can change their behaviors and their behaviors you can change. So we just very overtly say that in this intervention, you know, that you were referred to this intervention for bullying others. This is and then we spell out what the referral, you know, what the concerns were. And the goal of this intervention is to help understand more about your interactions with other people at your school and then how to help you change how you interact with people so people don't see you as someone who's bullying. And so we're just very direct about that. And again, because it's a research study, you know, the young people have to assent to participate. And again, in 14 years, we've never had a student say, I don't want to do this. So there's a a recognition there that there there needs to be some kind of change or action. Well, and I think, again, because it's one-on-one, I mean, so there's there's Mm -hmm. pros and cons with that. Because it's one-on-one, I think it really sends the message, we care about you. And these are often kids who don't get that message all the time. You know, in fact, adults typically are frustrated with them. And so the whole tone of this intervention is very solution-focused, non-judgmental. Look, we just want to help you interact with your peers in a better way. And so, you know, we work really hard to create that kind of a environment in this intervention. And, you know, again, we, we just get a lot of positive feedback from families and from schools about how much they appreciate this. Yeah. And I think, you know, you were also touching on the idea that if you're being bullied, there have been some effective interventions around helping kids understand that, you know, it's probably not going to be like this forever. Right. You know, that that people change, that you change. So that kind of works both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. I mean, and I think that's important to communicate to kids, you know, and, and you'll have kids say, you know, wow, my seventh grade year was horrible, but then in eighth grade, things got better. <laughs> I mean, it just, and yeah, I think that is really important um, that we communicate that to students. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us, Sue. Where could listeners learn more about you and your work? Where can they they find you? Sure. So um, I run a research group at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln called the Empowerment Initiative. And so if they just Google Empowerment Initiative, they'll find it. Uh, we also have a Instagram page and a Facebook page. And as I mentioned earlier, I also co-direct the Bullying Research Network. We have a website, which is... The they can just Google Bullying Research Network. We have a Facebook page and Twitter, and we're very active. So every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on the Bullying Research Network, we post a link to research articles about bullying. And so one mission is we want to, you know, disseminate the research to people so they can, you know, kind of understand, well, what's being done in this in the research space. So those are two good ways to, to find out more information. Great. Well... Dr. Susan Swear, thank you so much for being our guest today on the Grow Kinder podcast. Well, thank you guys so much. It was really fun, and um, I wish it was longer. (laughs) (laughs) We do, too. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Susan Swear. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org, and make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. 